When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello! And welcome to Awesome Etiquette. Where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take your questions on birthday gift requests, asking about a loved one's remains, handling estrangement when not many mutual friends know about it, and a question about whether a neighbor's request is polite or unrealistic. For Awesome Etiquette sustaining members, our question of the week is about using Venmo and social media to casually crowdsource a bachelorette. Plus, your most excellent feedback, etiquette salute, and a postscript where we interview etiquette author Donald James about his new book, Manners Will Take You Where Brains and Money Won't. All that's coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of our home offices in Vermont and is proud to be produced by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning. Hey, cuz. How's it going this fine day? Well, it's 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 going well. <laughs> it's I'm, I'm, it's a Wednesday, so I'm always I'm always loving Wednesdays because you and I are, are in office together back at it. And that always feels like it's such our back together the time. team is here, you know, and that just feels great. I got to admit, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Wednesday. And for many people, it's a hump day. But for us, it's a let's go kind of day. Well, for you, it's a let's go. For me, it is a hump day because I'm halfway through. <laughs> That's true. And, and for those of our audience who weren't here at the start of the pandemic, I switched my schedule. I yep. watch our daughters, Anisha and Ari, on Monday and Tuesday. So my weekend is now Monday and Tuesday, right. effectively. Yeah. We got we to gotta get you and Pooj back on the same weekend schedule just so that you guys can have weekends together again. It's been a long time. Oh, I can't wait. It's been a I really long wait. time. And that's we've been going through this entire pandemic. We're still going through it, um, some areas more so than others. But it really has been such a long time of disruption. And it's funny because we've we've gotten used to it in a lot of ways, um, like in, in regards, for instance, to our schedule and things like that and working around it and that sort of thing. But the reminder every now and again that this isn't our normal and it, like, you know what I mean? It's it's a it's this new normal, but the old normal. But the, where where's your comparison? It's interesting to kind of be in these spaces and wonder what it's going to be like in six months from now, what it's going to be like three months from now. I, I certainly haven't been able to easily predict the last year and what would or wouldn't happen. I know Dan and I have had a lot of conversations where we have been trying to predict things. I know my eyes just just opened wide hearing you talk about potentially predicting anything right. <laughs> over the last six months, <laughs> 18 months. 
No, it's definitely been interesting. But it makes it makes Wednesday a really different day for us in, in the scheme of our larger work context. Wednesday happens to be a yay day for us. It does. Lizzie Post, I so appreciate the reminder that the way that you and I are operating right now isn't, and I'm going to put the air quotes that no one can see around it, normal, normal. or the normal that we had worked together in for 10 years almost. A long time. Yeah. We've been doing this new routine long enough now. And I keep saying it 18 months, 18 months, because I have to remind myself that that's long enough for it to start to feel normal, normal. but that it's not necessarily a normal that I want. And the particular normal that I don't want that I'm talking about is that time away from family. Yeah. That despite being so compacted in terms of the range of our lives, how much we do, how far we travel, how much time we spend apart, the way Pooja and I have shifted our work schedules, we don't have as much downtime as a family, even yeah, though we yeah. spend so much time together. That, that, that moment of relaxation and reprieve, we have to really work to carve them out around our homework schedules yeah. and anyway I, I i appreciate the acknowledgement because it is different and it's sometimes hard to remember that because we've been doing it for so long right right it's it's a all kinds of different things i feel like have been like that um i i think about my uh sister and her husband and you know getting them out for like a date night you know and things like uh. that and as um, it's it just little things like that where it's like, oh my goodness, that's right. Like typically there are other things that would be going on. Um, anyway, it's been on the mind lately. We'll get there. <laughs> we will get there. And there's one other thing, Lizzie Post. This makes me think about etiquette. Oh, totally. I mean, how do we develop norms and why do they change? And when changes happen, do we go back to old norms? Do we accept new norms? What we're talking about is social change and the conditions that force it and then how you evaluate it and how you decide what's worth fighting through, what's worth fighting to get back and what you like about new conditions. Awesome Etiquette audience, please write into us and tell us about your new normals or the things that you are excited to get back to if there's something from our past lives you've been longing to return to. We would love to hear from you and how you're experiencing the changes in standards, both for routines and expectations in your life. I second that request. And in the spirit of working hard and carving out some family time, we have some questions to get to, Lizzie Bose. We do. We do. We do. Let's do it. Let's do it. Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions. And boy, do we need them. Please, please email them to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. You can also reach us on social media. On Twitter, we are at Emily Post Inst. On Instagram, we are at Emily Post Institute. And on Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette. Just use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette with your social media posts so that we know you want your question on the show. Awesome Etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. 
StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? <laughs> StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. <laughs> After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. Story Worth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. Our first question on the show this week is about a brighter birthday ahead. Hello, Dan and Lizzie. I absolutely adore your podcast and the nods to the evolution of etiquette. I would love if you could consider my question for the podcast. As a bit of background, I live abroad in London and my family lives in the U.S. Every year for my birthday, I have family ask what I would like. I supply an item or list with links that corresponds with items I know they like to purchase and can afford i.e. my grandparents love to buy something special, usually something for a formal event. However, my issue is that a good majority of the time this is completely ignored, or someone doesn't ask, and they gift me with gift cards to American websites and stores which I cannot use, or send the gifts to my parents' home. What is a nice way to request that if they wish to give me a gift, it be either from a UK site or send it to my UK address rather than my parents' home? My wish isn't to sound horribly demanding, but to be able to be more sincere when I say thank you and can actually let them know I received the gift promptly, rather than wait for a call with my mom to let me know so-and-so sent this. Thanks again for the wonderful podcast. All the best, Birthday Girl. Birthday Girl, thank you so much for the question. You know, suggestions really do make everything easier, but I have to say, I feel feel like Birthday Girl is already doing the suggestions I would, which is sending links to UK websites instead, you know, which also might help with shipping if some people are, are having that issue and that's why they're sending it uh, to the parents' house instead. Um, it's It makes it a lot easier to just buy from a UK company that can ship right there and it's not, you know, international shipping. But I feel like Birthday Girl is doing the things that, that I would suggest to do. Mm-hmm. Dan, the most I'm feeling like I could add to it would be to really talk with mom and dad about how you would really appreciate it if they could help spread the word. If someone does ask, you know, what what daughter is looking for for birthday and how best to go about it um, or even, you know, share with friends. Oh, we found it was so easy to actually order from this UK website because then shipping was in country and da, 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 da. I feel like maybe getting parents on board to spread the word would be a good idea here. I had a very similar thought. I was thinking about how registries function 
as suggestions, but that they're not demands. And well, you certainly wouldn't this, do a registry as a, no, <laughs> as a but, but but it gives me some indication about the etiquette ground that we're walking on, mm-hmm. and it, it, it's a fine line between making it easier for people to get you gifts, which they appreciate, and being too specific or giving too much direction that isn't appreciated. And I think there's a lot of awareness of that subtlety in the way the question is asked. And Mm -hmm. I agree with you. I think spreading the word as personally as possible is one of the easiest ways to strike the right tone and get the information across well. Mm -hmm. And the idea of the parents who are perhaps interacting with some of these people more, if they're the people that they're sending these gifts to, Mm-hmm. would be a great place to start. They might have opportunities where it's not a special message. Oh, could you send the birthday gift here instead of here this year? But in conversation at the club or over dinner or when they do talk on the phone on yeah. Thursday nights after bridge, it's an easier message to deliver. <laughs> I like in the all right of the way. parents you were just imagining. <laughs> totally. The One other idea that popped into my mind, and it's more of a practical suggestion. We've had several international students in our training program yeah. who have maintained, and I don't know exactly how it's done. I wish I, I, I wish I had the information available and at hand, uh, essentially um, shipping forwarding services in the U.S. where mm-hmm. they have a U.S. address that you can send things to. Oh, okay. And my assumption is that they assume the cost of the international shipping that happens after that. But I that there see. are services that are available for people who are overseas who are expecting to receive packages on a semi-regular basis or even a regular basis that that works to receive them and move them on to you. And, and it might be worth thinking about something. I don't know how long you're going to be in London for. Are there any other suggestions that we have for Birthday Girl? The only other thing I can think of is... I think a version of probably what birthday girl is doing already, which is be sure to be very clear and include Mm -hmm. an overseas address that has all of the information. If it's somebody's first time sending something overseas, or even if they're very familiar with the process, Mm -hmm. oftentimes you need a zip code that's got a slightly different number of numbers in it. And you need to know to fill in zeros for the blank spaces before FedEx will receive it or there might be a country code or you might need to be really sure that you list the country on the address on the right line and people aren't used to doing that. So I can tell you it would encourage someone like me who doesn't ship things internationally very often to to feel more confident about approaching that process and getting it right. If you're very specific about how you share the address and you even include uh, a, a shipping company that you know has fields in their form for an international shipment that look exactly like the information you've included, Mm -hmm. that can be really helpful. So I've had people send me directions for having a FedEx delivery work at a certain apartment complex in Bahrain or something Mm -hmm. like that, where the street address looks a little different, but FedEx can get it there. You just need to know how to fill it in. And of course, you'd only be sending this information to folks who have said, oh, I have a gift I'd really like to send you. Where should I send it this year? I think that's one of the other things. It's it's helpful if the mom and dad or, or parents and friends can do the the spreading via word of mouth. But it's also important to not just send out the announcement to people who may or may not get gifts for you. It's a subtle line. Birthday girl, we hope that this answer helps you navigate this question and that in the future, birthday gifts arrive in a timely manner and you feel as thankful as you want to feel. Well, maybe it'll help you to know just what we found out about honesty. 
and we found out plenty. To be honest, may sound easy. Some of the time it is, but it can be a real problem. Especially when wanting to be honest conflicts with other things you want to do. Our next question is titled, Regarding Remains. Hello. My brother's funeral was the week after our state opened up more, which means many of us were seeing each other for the first time since the holidays of 2019. It was both festive and funeral. In the midst of this, a late-arriving nephew asked, Where is uncle? Oh, I paused. Certainly I hadn't overlooked a casket. Why, he is cremated, I said. Then where's the urn? I admit, until then, I had not noticed that the main table held flowers and photos and vases, but no actual urn. We both agreed we couldn't ask, but later I did when I had a quiet moment alone. We couldn't decide, my sister-in-law admitted, stating some wanted one thing and some wanted another. I felt awful for asking and for her embarrassment at admitting this, but at some point, I would actually like to know where my brother's remains are, but I don't want to ask such a direct, intrusive question. In conversation with others, I am learning that many people don't know where a brother took their parents or exact spots and would love to visit the spot and pay respects. With small towns and burials, this was known, but with cremation becoming more common, often one is not present for this. Is this considered very private? Somewhat private? Who is told and how is one told regarding the final disposition of the ashes? C. C, thank you so much for this question. We're sorry to hear about your loss and at the same time really appreciate the thought that you've given to how we treat remains and how people interact around figuring out how to treat remains. I think that we can start with the really practical, which is yeah. that the remains are um, given to the next of kin and mm -hmm. the decision is up to them to decide what to do with it. And that could be different people in different situations, but it's mm -hmm. the family members that are closest to the person who's passed. As far as how they tell other people, it's really up to them. And the question of how you approach them and ask if they haven't decided to tell other people is definitely worth considering. But while everything at these times can feel very personal because we're talking about such a significant event, someone dying, that it can oftentimes be hard to tell what is personal and private and what is mm -hmm. just very personal. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those cases where as long as your how is well managed, as long as how you ask the question is considered and done well – you're in good shape to ask a question. It's a really reasonable thing to want to know. And for all of the reasons that you suggest, there are certainly some places in this world that I think of as sacred because I know that ashes of people who are important to me were spread there. there. Yeah. And, yeah. and for all of the good reasons that you might want to know, it's okay to ask those questions. 
I think you're absolutely right, Dan. I think it is okay to ask the questions. And I, I do think that they are not unexpected questions at this particular time. There are probably a lot of people who are interested in knowing that, whether it's because they want to visit the space or just to simply know so that they can have that sort of resting image of their loved one in their mind. I think it does give us a, a sort of sense of relief or a uh, sense of comfort to know that bit of information. So I, I wouldn't say it's unexpected or taboo conversation in any way. I think you were so right to think about the how in terms of the ask. And I would go so far as to also say your how in terms of your response to what you get told, I think is also important. You know, in the case of the sister-in-law, if you could sense that she felt embarrassed, then reassuring her that you understand it's a complicated issue, that you hope you'll be able to just hear what they decide in the end once they do come to a conclusion, I think would be b both a good thing in terms of recognizing what the sister-in-law might have been putting out there in her experience of it, as well as stating what you hope to achieve at the very, very end of it all, which is just to know the final resting place. At the risk of focusing on the negative, I want to just okay. mention a couple of the things that could make this kind of question not be received as well. Just yeah. the, the little cautionary things to think about. You, you want to be sure that your interest is genuine, that you're not asking with flip curiosity, that you're treating the, the issue itself with the seriousness that it deserves. Another thing that I would take care with is that your question doesn't carry with it any hint of criticism or judgment. You really want to ask that question in as open a way as possible. You're really looking for information and you're ready to to hear or accept really anything that, mm -hmm. that someone replies with. And that might include we don't know or we've decided to keep it private and being ready to accept those two answers as an extreme example of someone not wanting to tell you leaves you in really good shape to hear just about anything that that might come up. Things like Lizzie just mentioned, like there was some conflict or some embarrassment or some things that you might not have thought about that might be the reason you don't know already. I do feel like having in your back pocket that really positive and simple language of thank you for letting me know. Even if someone tells you, actually, we're going to keep that private, saying thank you for letting me know that you know, in a very sincere way, gives you that appreciation that you've simply received an answer, even even in the case of C, where the answer is, we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, thank you for letting me know. And if you're comfortable with keeping me posted, I'd love to know what the end result ends up being, I think is is perfectly acceptable in that type of a situation. If you haven't heard, we're keeping it private. C, thank you so much for bringing us this question today. Questions about end-of-life details are often ones where we feel very nervous, very awkward, very unsure, and it can feel so much better when you have a sense of what's okay and what's not okay, and questions about the remains, questions about how things are going to be done, whether that's the type of service, whether that's how someone's remains are prepared, whether it's where they will end up resting finally, all sorts of different questions come up. And again, they can feel really, really personal. But as Dan said, 
Making sure that you approach these topics delicately and with a lot of openness will go a long, long way towards not only answering questions, but building confidence during difficult times. See, thank you for the question. We hope that our answer helps. Our next question has the mysterious title, Still Waters Run Deep. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. Big fan of your podcast. I have an awkward situation that I'm not sure how to handle. I have two siblings I don't talk to, a brother and a sister. We grew up in a very small town, and while I am not connected with them on social media, many people I know are. My brother just graduated and has a new exciting job, and my sister is expecting a baby, and I wish them both the best, even though we don't speak. Most people aren't aware we don't speak, and I'm not one to bring it up. With all the new and exciting times in all our lives, I'm unsure how to answer questions from mutual friends and even some relatives. It's one thing when people ask how my brother and sister are, and I can just say fine, but many times people go into great detail. Congrats to your brother. You must be so excited. What is next for him? Or does sister know if she's having a boy or girl yet? Does the baby have a name? I don't know the answers to these questions, and I'm not one to lie, but I haven't even seen them in quite a few years, so I am unsure how to handle the situation. I don't want to seem rude or disinterested, and I genuinely appreciate the well wishes of well-meaning friends and family. But I also am hesitant to say we don't speak for fear it gets back to them, and they get the wrong idea that I am talking about them behind their backs. Thank you for any insight or guidance you can provide. I know I'm not the only one in this situation, and hope others could benefit from this also. Anonymous. Anonymous, thank you so much for the question. Dan, I have an etiquette move here. I don't know if I'm feeling sports oh, around good. the corner. Uh, I was, uh, you know, like football season's coming. But I think of this as like direct truth and pivot. And so you directly answer the question, you know, I'm not sure, and then pivot. And you move on to a different subject. So if they ask, you know, how's the baby or what are the, is the baby going to be a boy or a girl? What are they going to name the baby? You know, I'm not sure. I'm so excited for them, but I actually don't know the answer to that. And then move on. Hey, I heard such and such about your daughter, or I was really excited to hear this happened. You know, just pivoting to something else in the conversation that you can move on to. I think it's fine to admit that you don't know without then saying, I don't know because we don't talk. I think you can just say, you know, I'm not sure about that. Or, oh, I don't know what his next step are. We're just so excited for where he is right now. I feel like that's all perfectly fine to do. Lizzie, I think that's really good advice. The idea to to get your information out, but then pivot and pivot to safer territory. And it, it's very much in line with the advice that I was thinking about giving, which is also that it's really wise not to air the dirty laundry yes. of your family in yes. public. And whether it's a small town where we know social circles are small or the great big world where we know social circles get smaller every day, it's really, really wise to be careful with how we talk about other people and particularly how we share information about others that could be viewed as negative information like they're estranged from their siblings. And there might be very good reasons for that. They might be reasons that people understand, but in general, that's something that without more context, 
many people would view as negative. So I think taking care with how you share that, if mm -hmm. it's not widely known, is is really wise. There's a big difference between the sound of, oh, I really wouldn't know that versus, oh, I don't know what they're going to name the baby, but I'm so happy for them. I think one invites a bit of a question mark and the other one just sounds like, oh, I'm, I'm not. I just realized I'm not aware of that. Can you hear the difference, Dan? I sure can. Anonymous, we hope our suggestions help and that it makes future conversations when you're running into mutual friends easy and breezy. In any family, we are bound to encounter a certain amount of rivalry among the brothers and sisters. Rivalry for attention, for esteem, and it's not too strong to say for love. Our next question is titled, Polite or Unreasonable? Hi, Lizzie and Dan. Thank you so much for making such a wonderful podcast that has introduced me to the delightful world of etiquette. I love hearing your take on situations week to week, and I have a situation I would like your opinion slash advice on. To start, I'm in my mid-20s and currently in graduate school on the East Coast. A few weeks ago, I moved into my new multi-story apartment building on the second floor. The other morning, I opened my door and saw a card with my apartment number on the front of it placed on my doormat. I opened it to find a note from my downstairs neighbor, which kindly requested that I be mindful of her presence with my footsteps and with my window AC unit. I immediately felt terrible that I had disrupted her and embarrassed that she felt she had to write a note, which was written very nicely, by the way, to ask me to be quiet. I immediately wrote a note back apologizing for disturbing her and letting her know that I would be more conscious when moving around the apartment and using my AC unit. However, the more I thought about the note, the more I started to feel like her request was unreasonable. Allow me to explain. My apartment building is quite old and has no central air. Therefore, we are allowed to have window units to cool the apartments during the summer. I acknowledge that my window unit is quite loud and could definitely be heard by someone who sleeps with their windows open. I try not to run the unit during the night because it disrupts my sleep, but if it's very hot out, I can't sleep due to the heat either. Box fans simply do not cut it when it's 90 degrees out at night. A loud AC unit is certainly not ideal, but it's all that I have to keep cool. I don't make very much money being in graduate school, and I'm currently paying off college loans, so the thought of purchasing a several hundred dollar standing AC unit that might be quieter makes my stomach drop. With regards to the footsteps, this came to me as a surprise. I have a no-shoes policy in my apartment and generally wear my slippers around. I don't throw parties or do any sort of jumping around either. I am generally asleep by 10 p.m., so I'm not up and walking around at odd hours of the night. I'm on campus all day long. In fact, I'm only in the apartment in the mornings and at night. The apartment is all wood flooring, and I do have two rugs, but the floor creaks whether there is a rug there or not. I'm really not sure what I could do to combat the sound of footsteps. I briefly thought about buying rug runners to try to fill in the gaps that my other rugs don't reach, but again, it just seems like an extra cost to satisfy my neighbor. Now, every time I walk in my apartment or turn on the AC unit, I feel terrible guilt. I don't want to disturb my neighbor, but I feel as though her request does not allow me to live freely in my own apartment. I want to be the best neighbor I possibly can be. 
while not feeling a nuisance, annoying just for living there. I am having a really hard time determining whether or not her request is justified and if I need to change my living arrangements to be a good neighbor of her standards or if I'm already adequate. Thank you so much in advance for any advice you may have. Tiptoeing Tina. Tiptoeing Tina, thank you for the question and thank you for all of the detail because I think that as that detail unfolds in front of us, I don't know about you, Lizzie Bose, but I certainly can so sympathize with the I did <laughs> the, the passage of time here. Yes. That you first get the note and you're, oh no, what can I do? I need to make this better. And then as you sort of process and understand more and more about the ask and think more about what you can do, your reaction to it changes a little bit. Yep. The note still reads very nicely, but your ability or willingness to respond in some really positive way starts to be less clear or less possible. Right. I right. think this is not an uncommon situation. And you start to have genuine questions about where the lines are between being a good neighbor and having the freedom to live your life the way you need to live it. I have a number of ideas about ways that we might proceed here. But before I dominate the mic, thoughts, Lizzie Post? <laughs> Oh my goodness. I have, I have so many thoughts. I'm worried I'm going to snag some of yours if I go into my own list. But I do think that because you've received the note, and I know that a note already went back right away, but I, I, I'm very curious about this now in between time, right? Because the, the subject's been broached. But we haven't bought any rugs. We we aren't in a position to be able to remove our shoes further than we already have when we walk around the apartment. Or cancel the dance parties. And, or Yeah, there's no – exactly. There's no dance parties. There's no exercise routine or trumpet being played. There, And we haven't been able to replace the AC unit. I'm wondering if another note is going to come sometime soon or a conversation or if this was just a, a gentle reminder of, hey, I'm below, anything you can do is helpful. Mm -hmm. What I'm getting at, Dan, is are we going to need to explain what we're already doing to this neighbor or will the situation just kind of die here, which I could also see happening after one exchange of – Please recognize I live below you. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Of course I've recognized that you live below me. You know, if that's all it is, that might be all that needs to happen. Lizzie Bose, let me interrupt because I want I, I want to ask you, knowing me as well as you know me, which direction do you think I would want this to go and would be most likely to take it? I think you would love to have it end here. <laughs> just the How simple, did you know? <laughs> just the simple uh, note back saying, so sorry, try to do better in the future. And then hopefully they never say, anything again and hopefully you never have to address it again what i'm curious about though cousin is how long it would take for you to stop wondering in your head whether the next note or the next knock on the door to please quiet down was coming you know <laughs> for me personally it would be yeah. very quick yeah and yeah. It, but it was also the thing in this question that i noticed mm -hmm. that um tiptoeing tina talks about that feeling of guilt mm -hmm. that follows her through the front door every time she comes home. And the advice part of my answer, as I was thinking about what would be useful here, w one thought would be to address that guilt internally, mm -hmm. to say to yourself, the way I'm living here, what I'm doing here is very reasonable in the context of the neighbors that I'm living with. Mm -hmm. The lifestyle that I live, the way I treat the apartment, the way I behave in the apartment, it is all pretty coherent. It all makes sense. And 
there might be a little disruption on someone else, but it's well within the range of normal activities that anybody who rented an apartment here would expect to be able to do. So I'm really not going to worry about it that much because that worry isn't useful for me. The The guilt isn't helpful. And for me, when I think about the functionality of it, it's relatively easy for me to let it go. Mm-hmm. If that wasn't the case, I would then want to proceed to course number two, I would want to re-engage the discussion because I would want to figure out a way to let go of that guilt. And that's not my comfort zone, (laughs) entering sort of unknown back and forths with strangers or people I don't know that well. But I think that it's also worth it if that brings you peace of mind in your own home. And I was curious, you you had a couple of suggestions in your scripts about ways that you might pick up that conversation. And I thought some of them were really good. Dan, what I like about the fact that we've already had the apology go back, and I think I would wait a little while before readdressing it, because one of the things that waiting a little while and a little while for me, I'm imagining I'm imagining like two to three weeks, but I knowing me, it would turn into a month <laughs> or a little bit longer before I went downstairs and asked any questions about how it was going is that it gives the downstairs neighbor time to also adjust to having you upstairs and to get used to the little noises and little changes from not having someone up there or from maybe having someone up there who did have a quieter AC unit and completely carpeted flooring. Like, you know, I have no idea what the previous tenant, if there was one was like, but I like the idea of it. It does just take a little bit of time. I know when I used to have roommates, it would take me like a month or two to adjust to how things sounded. And I would be really annoyed the first, well, the first week I'm usually okay with everything, but the second week to like first month, I'm, I'm very annoyed with all the things that have now happened in my world that weren't happening before. Sure. But then by months two and three, I'm really used to them. So however long you think is a good amount of time to wait, if you're willing to broach the subject again, I would either leave a little note inviting your neighbor up for tea one afternoon or inviting your neighbor to talk. Or if you happen to catch your neighbor in the hallway one day, I might just say, hey, I just wanted to double check and see if it was any quieter, if things had been better. I know I can't change how loud the AC unit is. But I just wanted to check in after your your very kind note. And that might prompt things you don't want to hear. I'm going to be really honest about that. But it would at least prompt a conversation where maybe if they say, boy, you know, it really hasn't changed at all. You might say, well, these are the only two other areas I can identify to make a difference. And right now I'm not in a financial position to do them. And I think that that would also be a fine conversation. Sometimes knowing why something can't be quieter helps you to just accept it for how it is. So if you want to broach the subject, I would, as I said, give it a couple of weeks, give it a, a month maybe, and then readdress it when you get a very convenient moment to do so. I love the idea of a check-in and having it be light enough that you can connect a, a face and a name and identity, a voice mm-hmm. to the back and forth notes. I know that it's a lot easier to give someone else the credit of good intentions or even just think of them as a person and not as that annoyance upstairs as you get to know them a little bit better. There are some definite advantages to building those relationships with neighbors, even through moments of awkwardness. And I think the the quality of that note, hearing that it was well-written and well-delivered, gives me hope that this is a neighbor relationship that could be a good one, that it's not one where you're likely to run into a lot of stressful conflict. 
Dan, I was also reminded of another piece of advice that we give to hosts when they're going to host their first house guests, often in a new home. And we say, stay in the guest room for a night because it'll show you all the flaws, all the little things you wouldn't notice because you're usually asleep in your regular bed in the, in the master bedroom or whatever. And I feel like while you wouldn't do a trade of apartments for a whole night, I think that asking the neighbor if you don't mind having them go walk across your floor while you listen from below so you can get a sense for what it sounds like. I mean, you might decide, boy, I would feel so annoyed if I lived here and that's what regular quiet slippered feet sounded like. I am going to make an effort to tiptoe or really save up for that rug because I understand that it would make such a difference. I feel like getting that that sense of perspective from both directions is probably never a bad thing. And it, like I said, it might just be inviting the person up for tea or or establishing that relationship so that you get the space. It might be directly saying, would you want to test it out so I can hear what you're experiencing? Never hurts to try. A lot of people probably won't go this direction, but it's it's a suggestion. I'll confess, I was so curious when I saw <laughs> that note in your show script. I was hoping that you would give the advice on air, and I, I wanted to know. I was saying to myself, I wonder what it does sound like. Right? I wonder what those footfalls do sound like on that ceiling. And there's really no way to know unless you experience it yourself. And I recognize that you potentially open that can of worms by getting more involved in that conversation, <laughs> particularly if there's not much you can do about it. Right. But if this person is as pleasant as their note presented them as being, then it might also be a way to really find some accord and find some really subtle solutions that might not occur to you unless you were working together as a team. Tiptoeing Tina, no matter how you decide to proceed with your neighbor, we truly hope that you feel comfortable in your home. Do you know some things you can do to help make your room a quiet place for work? Thank you for your questions. Please send us updates or feedback on our answers to awesome etiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. You can also reach us on social media. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we are Awesome Etiquette. Just remember, use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette with your post so that we know you want your question on the show. If you're enjoying Awesome Etiquette, please consider becoming a sustaining member by visiting us at patreon.com slash awesome etiquette. You'll get an ads-free version of the show and access to bonus questions and content. Plus, you'll feel great knowing that you help keep Awesome Etiquette on the air. And to those of you who are already sustaining members, thank you so much for your support. It's time for our feedback segment where we hear from you about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. And today we have feedback from Brittany. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. When my husband and I got married, we put a note on the registry page of our wedding website that we were both keeping our names the same. We figured that it would be the most likely place people would wonder about names when personalizing gifts or writing cards. We did get a few cards addressed to husband's name and Brittany, husband's last name, but thankfully at least no monogrammed or custom gifts with his name. Just wanted to share this idea for a place this information could live on wedding websites and absolutely agree that it should be standard. Brittany Lamb. Brittany, thank you for the increased specificity. That is a great place to be sure to have that information for people. 
Our next piece of feedback begins. Dear Lizzie and Daniel, Oh my, I've just been so behind on listening to the podcast that I only yesterday listened to episode 344, Dinner Party Download Reprise, (laughs) wherein you kindly answered my question about how to address my very nosy neighbor. I was so excited to hear my letter being read that it gave my heart a little flutter, and the answer was, well, just perfect. I wouldn't have expected anything less. I'm deeply grateful to both of you for your advice. Thank you so much for providing thoughtful and thorough answers. You provided me with many options and elegant solutions to handle my problem. I regret that I didn't go searching to see if my questions were selected because I would have had an arsenal of advice specific to my concerns. I haven't fully addressed the issue, but I have used what I learned from your podcast. I'm certain to be friendly, but do not divulge personal details about anything in my life. And I now take a step outside when she unexpectedly shows up. I make sure to smile and wave if I see her in passing, and I'll chat, but I don't engage in long, drawn-out conversations. I tend to say that I've got something to do inside and say goodbye. I've also had to remind her to stop texting me before 9 a.m. or after 8 p.m., so in essence, I've slowly distanced myself from her and I feel better but I cannot shake the feeling of being observed. I will take note of the advice on how to handle any comments on being watched and use when you I feel statements. I also will be specific about what I want to talk about and set boundary expectations. And if and when I do have a conversation, I will be certain to make my good intentions explicit about how much we love living there and having a good relationship with my neighbors whenever possible. Again, thank you so, so very much. With kindest regards, Kathleen. P.S. Unbeknownst to my husband, I'm planning an etiquette pilgrimage to Vermont as soon as this blasted virus is under control. I hope they don't listen together and we just blew her cover. (laughs) I hadn't even thought of that. And I'm also just laughing because I love blasted virus. I'm going to start using that. I had my first moment of anger at this blasted virus. And I share that feeling. Uh, very excited about your etiquette pilgrimage to Vermont. Do keep us posted. Do keep us posted. Kathleen, thank you so much for your feedback on the question about your nosy neighbor. And please keep us posted on that etiquette pilgrimage to Vermont. And thank you for sending us your thoughts and updates. Please keep them coming. You can send your feedback or update to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. It's time for our Postscript segment where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette. And today, even though this episode airs on Labor Day, instead of talking about when to wear white, we're going to dive into an interview that we have been so incredibly excited about. It is titled Etiquette in Space. Yes, all you old Muppet fans, you heard that correctly. (laughs) I am thrilled to be bringing you an interview that I have done recently with newly minted etiquette author Donald James, and the NASA scientist with a deep appreciation for and understanding of etiquette. He recently wrote a book that he's been thinking about for many years, inspired by his mother, called Manners Will Take You Where Brains and Money Won't. And Lizzie, I can't wait for you and our audience to hear this. Donald James, welcome to Awesome Etiquette. It is an honor and a privilege to have you here today. I am going to ask you to do something that I 
love to ask guests to do, which is I could read your bio, but I think that it is so much more interesting if you tell us a little bit about yourself and the origins of the book that we're going to be talking about today. Manners will take you where brains and money won't. I think it is a, a real accomplishment. But before we get into it, um, I'd like to hear just a little bit from you about yourself and where this book came from. Well, thank you, Daniel, and you're welcome. Uh, I'm truly honored to uh, speak with you today about, you know, an important subject. And um, I just, I really do appreciate it. Um, I spent all my career at the space agency, NASA, 35 years. And when I finished uh, my career, I started thinking about many of the questions that students used to ask me. I worked in education. And so um, the book really comes out of you know, those questions where they would ask, you know, well, how did you make it at NASA? And, you know, what does it take? And how do you, you know, get figure out the right schools to go to and things of that nature. So um, in a nutshell, that's how I got from the space agency to writing the book on manners. But um, I grew up in Sacramento, California with my brother, Dennis, uh, who was my co-author and reared by my mother, Muriel James. She uh, was single. My parents had divorced. Um, later, she imported my grandmother to help with the parenting at her house. And they were they were from Georgia. And so they grew up with um, a lot of Southern etiquette and conventions. And so that um, through osmosis, I learned a lot from them. And um, upon reflection, I realized just how important that was to my life and career. So um, I'm now retired and then enjoying speaking about the book and doing some other projects uh, from my home in Pleasanton, California. Well, let's talk a little bit about the book and even more broadly, let's talk a little bit about the topic of etiquette. It is a, a very broad and oftentimes hard to pin down idea that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. It's something that we talk about on this show all the time. Lizzie Post and I spend a lot of time thinking about etiquette, what it is, and how it's composed of so many things, how it can be about specific actions we, can, we take. And it can also be about how those actions tell people about the decisions that we make inside or the values that we hold. And it can seem very superficial, and at the same time, it can be incredibly uh, deep and affecting. I'm curious how you approach this topic and um, what you discovered about it as you, as you tackled writing a book on this oftentimes elusive topic. First of all, I, you know, to me, the work that you and your cousin do, and of course, coming from Emily Post herself, for me, that's, you know, like the guru of all of this. And I've been aware of her and her work for quite some time, but never had fully studied it. So although I was quite nervous to reach out because I didn't know, you know, if you guys would be amenable to, you know, some strange guy, NASA guy out in California wanting to connect on this. But I'm very, very grateful for that. And, you know, when I was thinking about our respective work, one way that I like to characterize it, and I don't know how well I did it, I'll leave it up to the readers to to judge, is I was, to use an analogy in the computer world, I was hoping to write a book about how we develop what they call in the computer world our firmware, which, as you know, the firmware is the fundamental programming 
that makes, you know, a Mac a Mac or a PC a PC. And it doesn't really change. It's just it it accepts the software, which does change. And that dictates how you deal with the computer. You know, I update my applications. I get a new applications. Well, all of that software. Well, the firmware is is what's really foundational. And I was hoping to address that in what I wrote, but also I recognize that, you know, as times change and as you guys have written about and spoken about, you know, our ways of interacting evolve, you know, in the old days, you know, you know, the men that would stand up if a woman came in the room, but now it's appropriate, you know, as out of respect for men and women to do it as a form of equity. And there's other things like that. And so, I knew that I didn't have expertise in all of that, which is where you guys come in because you can, if somebody wants to know, you know, anything about how to properly do something in these circumstances, they can certainly go to the Emily Post Institute and learn that. Whereas I was trying to approach this from a core development, take some skill. It's it's like, you know, becoming a, a mathematician or becoming, a, you know, a polyglot or something like that, that this is a a way of being in the world, your manner that people just can understand and get, but often don't speak to the specific details about what it is about a person that captures them, what is it that resonates with them, or on the other end, what is it that repels them, or what is it that makes them feel uncomfortable? They may not even be able to put their finger on it. So, I wanted to approach it that way at the same time because of much of what informed my writing came from my work experience at NASA. I use a lot of NASA stories to illustrate my points um, as well as things that I learned from my mother. And so to that extent, um, like I said, I'll leave it to the readers to decide if you know, it really lands with respect to addressing the core manners principles. Um, And then I offer examples to get into details about, you know, what it could look like, you know, when your manners work and what it looks like when your manners don't work. Um, So I've met people, I know you've met people where after you know, a few minutes when you've established a connection and a relationship and there's a rapport, you go away feeling like, wow, there, there's just something about that person I really like and I just appreciate. And you can, you can feel like you can be with them and you want to learn from them. And then there's other people that, you know, you probably wouldn't call back or you, you know, wouldn't necessarily spend some time with. And so that's what I'm trying to, to address in this book is how do we cultivate our manners in such a way where we're attractive to people, people respect, you know, who we are as individual, that we are concerned about others, uh, uh, and, and, and even not people, like whether it could be animals or the planet, I think you could have great manners with respect to our planet, for example, in addition to people. So, so that's what I was hoping to accomplish. Um, Upon reflection, you know, maybe I might have emphasized some other things and looking back uh, to try to explain that better. But, um, you know, once you publish a book, it kind of takes a life of its own and you learn things from it yourself, right? (laughs) I'll say writing a book is uh, 
particular leap of faith yeah. in the yeah. you put those words down and they become a record of that moment that thought that particular point in time and in some ways they're beautiful for that and in other ways it can be so frustrating because that's it <laughs> it is what it is um i'm really curious about this book i thought that you did an incredibly good job of tying together a number of different themes and also offering some really practical, actionable advice. And I'm hoping that you can talk a little bit about some of the different skills that you brought to bear on on this topic. And I'm, I'm particularly curious about how a career at NASA influenced your approach to a topic that I think a lot of people would think of as as really being in the realm of the social sciences. Yeah, that's I, I like the way you characterize that. Um, obviously, having worked with a space agency, I was steeped in uh, the scientific and engineering world. That was, you know, my experience. My own academic degrees were in the social sciences, so that weren't in the so-called STEM fields directly. But you know, I I learned to think the way scientists think, which is often, um, you know, curiosity. And so if you just take curiosity, which is trying to understand things, you know, I've taken that to, you know, human interaction and group interactions. Oftentimes I'm with a group of people and I'm just intensely curious about the dynamics of how conversations evolve. And I ask myself, what is it that people are yearning for and hungering for in this conversation? Does, does somebody want power? Does somebody want to be affirmed? Does somebody need to be heard? Does somebody need to just listen and capture what other people are saying? So I become a student of that, and and, and whether it's one-on-one or whether it's in groups. And so, you know, a scientist's curiosity is often uh, not about trying to get to a predetermined conclusion that they think is true, but to be remain open to a possibility that they hadn't seen before. And so I think I've been able to leverage both uh, my training with NASA as well as, you know, things I learned from my mom and just, you know, pretend, you know, not pretending that I know everything because I certainly don't and just see, as we say in NASA, where does the data lead to me, you know, and just, and, and, and it's a constant evolution of that. So that's a great characterization of, of both those things. And so thank you for that. Now, while the end process of writing a book is a particular concrete product, the process of writing a book takes time. And I'm really curious if there were things that you discovered during that or or, um, more particularly or specifically, were there things that surprised you along the way? Yeah, I think the first thing that was a surprise is that how it can take a bit of a life on its own and that you know, where I thought I was going, sometimes I changed and morphed. And I also had a lot of help. I had a lot of beta reviewers. And, you know, as you know, from I think chapter 10 about team, I'm a big believer in having a group of people, you know, support the work that I'm doing. And so some of their insights and things helped. I was surprised that when I first started laying this out, I had 13 chapters. And even though I don't feel at all superstitious, I felt like 
Uh, I, I want an even number of chapters. So I talked to my editor and we, we reconfigured some earlier chapters, split split the pink suits, and uh, I think, in two. And, and I added a 14th chapter because I just wanted to have 14. I mean, that's literally how I got the 14 chapters. The, the only other thing that surprised me is that because I... I, you know, I was not a, a writer. I didn't write any books before, and I, I learned a little bit about what I needed to do. But I didn't do a concept map of the structure of the book initially to talk about, okay, what stories am I going to tell and where they're going to go and all of this stuff. And so sometimes I'd get into the book, and I'm writing about a story, I'm like, I think I, didn't I talk about this before? I couldn't remember what, so I had to go back and read some earlier stuff, and, and then... The funny thing is when I was reviewing the book at the end, I was referencing a story that I told and I'm like, God, I don't remember what chapter I put in the Farmer Brown story in. So I went back to look for Farmer Brown and I realized I had taken it out, but I forgot to take out the references to it. So I called my editor. I said, oh, no, I got to clean this up. And so so I learned about just, you know, how to structure things. And, you know, so was, I, I kind of laugh at myself about that because, you know, I had to make sure I didn't, you know, write something in the reader like, what is he talking about? <laughs> I never heard. Who's Farmer Brown, right? <laughs> I certainly know Lizzie Post is sitting somewhere laughing <laughs> and appreciating that thought. She spent so much time working on on the cross-references in the 20th edition of Etiquette. And every time we did any sort of reorganizing of our content, there was always yeah. that looming question, is there anywhere in the book that we yeah. reference this specifically and it's now no longer pointing at the correct section? Well, I I feel her living in fear because I, I went through that. So now lesson learned. If I ever do something else, I'll be more careful about that. So throughout this book, you introduce some larger themes, and oftentimes you do it through a particular story or experience or a manner that you're talking about. But then you'll you'll work out into a, a bigger picture concept. I think of them as things that you learned as being fundamentally important from your mother or really important life skills in some way. And one of those you amusingly named pink suits. And I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about pink suits. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, pink suit is a metaphor and it's meant to suggest that you try something on that you probably wouldn't try on. So I talk about, you know, how I don't own a pink suit and nor do I think about trying it on. But if you can imagine someone coming up to you and say, Daniel, I have this pink suit. It looks really good. I want you to try it on. And you think your first reaction is, uh, that's not exactly the kind of person that I am. And I don't know that I want to wear a pink suit, let alone take it out and go to a formal event. So if you imagine why you pause at the invitation to wear a pink suit, then metaphorically what I'm writing about is if somebody was to suggest something to you that's a little bit outside of your comfort zone, something that you wouldn't do, then the invitation is to try it on knowing that if you don't like it, you can take it off and give it away. I'll give you a, 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 an example that I learned in sports that I learned that there are some 
professional athletes and football players that found out that taking up ballet was great for their physical development and learning how to stay on their feet in the mayhem of football. Now, if you were to go to high school football team and said, the coach says, I want you guys to take Mrs. Jones' ballet class, you can imagine the reaction that you might get from a lot of these players like, what are you talking about? Because it's it's like in The Karate Kid when Mr. Miyagi told the young charge to paint the fence and to shine the floor. He didn't understand, why are you having me paint the fence and shine floor? And then you find out in the movie that what he's really teaching them is certain Uh, eye-hand movements and development that will help him in his karate. So a pink suit is a metaphor. And it's, 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 sometimes I'll, I have actually had people say to me, now you need to try on this pink suit. And I realize instantly what they're saying is that they can sense that I'm resisting some feedback. They're re- I'm resisting some advice or some coaching. And because they know the book, they'll say, this is a pink suit thing. And so then I will shift and really absorb what it is that I'm hearing and perhaps do what it is that they're suggesting because as uh, you know, the coach or somebody who knows something, they, you know, they're inviting me to get a little uncomfortable because uh, I can grow. Um, and lastly, what I will say is that if I reflect on my life and, and where it is that I felt that I grew the most, I grew the most after accepting a pink suit in my life because uh, it was refreshing and new and it, it was a it was something that I didn't really expect. So that that's what pink suits are all about. Now I, I want to acknowledge that, you know, a lot of people wear pink suits. It's not a bad thing. It's not it's weird. It's just it's just a metaphor. <laughs> All right, so I have to tell you that I think one of the reasons this particular metaphor resonated so much with me is that I had my own pink suit experience that was not a metaphor. Back when I was in my freshman year of high school, I was helping out at a church rummage sale, and we were sorting clothes that had been donated. This was me and some friends from the youth group, and there were these um, almost polyester leisure suits that had probably been donated by a little old lady in our community. And we were playing around with all the different things that we were sorting and trying them on like costumes. And these particular suits were just so fantastic. They had giant peaked lapels and they were in bright colors. I didn't choose pink, but I chose a red orange version with big bell bottoms and wore it to school the next day as a freshman. And it completely changed people's views of me in the church community, in high school. And I had so much fun doing it, but (laughs) it was definitely um, way outside of my usual expectations for myself or the expectations that other people had of me. And I learned a lot that day. That's wild. That's wild. Well, it can be very useful. Uh, I remember in high school when we were um, learning about the challenges of people with disabilities, the assignment was that we all had to take on a disability for the day. So some of us had to be blindfolded the whole day. Others had to be confined to a wheelchair, which is what I chose. And I was astonished at seeing the world 
from the vantage point of being in a wheelchair. This was even before the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and not being able to navigate getting into the bathroom, not being able to get through doors. And so it really, that experience, which I would characterize as pink suit because, you know, it's something unusual and different, was the uh, a real lesson to me in the world of those who are differently abled. And so that would be an example of how it played out. Your example, you know, is is wonderful because it tells me that you had the courage to do it and you also probably learned that even though your peers might laugh and tease and all that, you know, maybe you just didn't take it personally or maybe you did take it real personally and you were traumatized by that and had to go to therapy. I don't really know, but it's an opportunity to learn something about yourself, right? I learned a lot interviewing Donald James. In fact, our interview went on for another half an hour. And rather than encourage people to go to Patreon to hear it, I decided that it was just too interesting not to save for a second postscript. So I'm inviting everyone who's listening to join us next week to hear the second half of this interview. There are some topics that Donald and I discussed that you will not want to miss. We'll see you then. We like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing, and that can come in so many forms. Today, we have a salute from Emma to her friend Jackie. Hi, Dan and Lizzie and the Awesome Etiquette team. I have a very special salute for my friend Jackie. She recently got engaged over the Christmas holiday, and I was thrilled for her. She reached out to me at the end of January and asked me if I would be a bridesmaid. She preferenced this with asking also if I was financially able to be a bridesmaid as she knew that I was furloughed last year due to the pandemic. I thought it was very sweet and kind that she prefaced it by saying that if you are financially able, I would love for you to have a, be a part of my wedding. It was so sweet. After I took some time to think about it, I, of course, accepted because I was able to work it out and make sure I was there for my friends. Not long after I accepted, she called me to thank me for joining her bridal party and to also let me know that if I had to drop out at any time due to any COVID restrictions or anything like that, because we are in separate cities, that she would completely understand and would not hold it against me. And I just thought it was so sweet and compassionate of her to understand that even though it is her special day, that there is a lot of trying times for everybody. So for that, I just want to say thanks, Jackie. Oh, that is such a sweet salute between friends. And it's such an important moment. And especially at this particular time when we're still dealing with this pandemic, it's it's awesome to hear about people working those flexibilities into their exchanges. Emma, thank you so much for this salute. And Dan, I'm going to put in a kind of mini salute to, to you and the rest of our show crew because this show marked 365 episodes and you know that I'm a geek with numbers and I absolutely love the fact that after today someone could listen every single day for an entire year and have a fresh episode of Awesome Etiquette if they hadn't heard the show before. Lindsay <laughs> Post, you badly. Thank you so much. <laughs> and thank you all for listening and being here for 365 episodes. <laughs> We appreciate you so much, and thank you to everyone who sent us something and everyone who supports us on Patreon. Please connect with us and share this show with friends, family, and coworkers, however you like to share podcasts. 
you can send us your next question, feedback, or salute by email to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave us a message or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute. Please consider becoming a sustaining member by visiting patreon.com slash awesome etiquette. You can also subscribe to the ads version of our show on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. And please consider leaving us a review. It helps our show ranking, which helps more people find awesome etiquette. Our show is edited by Chris Albertine and assistant produced by Bridget Dowd. Thanks, Thanks Chris, Chris and Bridget. And Bridget.